0: Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, and this is the ACR 2019 podcast. We're coming to you from the annual meeting in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode is a collection of our faculty reports, interviews, and panel discussions recorded live from the RoomNow booth. I hope you enjoy and learn.
1: Hi, I'm David Liu
2: from Melbourne, Australia, reporting from RoomNow from ACR 2019 here in Atlanta. Some really interesting anchor-associated vasculitis abstracts on the floor today uh, and really practice-changing kind of stuff. Uh, the first one was reporting the results from the rituximab trial, uh, which looked at rituximab versus azathioprine azoth- as maintenance for anchor-associated vasculitis following rituximab induction. Um, multi-centre study, really important study, and the results were fairly clear in that rituximab really did outperform azathioprine as maintenance therapy. But really impressively, though, the safety profile comparing between rituximab and azathioprine was pretty similar. Even in terms of hypogammaglobulinemia, anemia, the kind of thing that you might worry about if you're giving rituximab every four months like they were doing in this study. Second practice changing, uh, uh, study on anchor associated vasculitis today was actually from the French, uh, from a large French collaborative that's been collecting vasculitis data since 1983. It looked at 795 GPA um, vasculitis patients and it was really examining the question do we ever cure patients and do those cured patients ever do better than the ones who aren't supposedly cured, the ones that stay on therapy versus the ones who have a sustained remission off therapy. And comparing these patients at three years, five years, greater than seven years, they didn't find any difference between the two groups. Really comes down to the fact that anchor vasculitis is one of those conditions that you often have to treat ongoingly with maintenance therapy on an ongoing basis to really get the best outcomes. So really thought-provoking stuff in anchor associated vasculitis today. There's some interesting abstracts from the French group in coming days as well. Log on to roomnow.com for more data from this whole meeting and I'll see you there.
3: This is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now. I'm at the ACR 2019 meeting in Atlanta, Georgia. And I just got out of a very interesting session. This is on um, clinical infection risk and safety profile for RA therapeutics. And there were several posters that were, or abstracts that were presented. And so I'm just gonna summarize what I found out. The first one was looking at hypogamma globulinemia in patients who've received rituximab. Now, there are certain patients who um, have underlying hypogemoglobinemia who then receive rituximab, who have developed infection, but what about those patients who actually had a normal um, immunoglobulin level and then received rituximab and then developed What What is the profile of those patients and what happened to those patients? Well, in this one retrospective trial, they looked at these patients in particular. They found that about 24% of patients on rituximab can develop hypogamma globinemia. And they found that those patients at risk for developing it were, number one, patients with anka associated vasculitis, patients who received cyclophosphamide in the past, and three, patients who've been exposed to high-dose steroids. So those patients are at risk. Not only that, these patients have a higher rate of infection, though non clinically significant. Um, and then the other abstract that was presented was also the rate of uh, major adverse cardiovascular events, MACE, and VTE in patients um, in across UPA-dacitinib. So these are based on phase three trials, and they found that actually there's no increased risk for MACE or VTEs with UPA, all right? So this is kind of different from all the other JAK inhibitors. Why is that? Well, the author was saying, first of all, the follow-up is short compared to some of the other JAK inhibitors, it's only two years. Um, they didn't find any correlation with UPA with dosing, so higher doses of UPA didn't increase the risk for cardiovascular events or VTEs. They didn't I- find any correlation with lipid numbers, and they didn't find any correlation with latelets. All right, so another abstract. This one is looking at the Medicare database. All right, this is uh, Jeff Curtis's study. And they were wanting to see what happened to patients who received long-term, low-dose steroids. So they were divided up into zero milligrams, uh, less than five milligrams, five to 10 milligrams, and greater than 10 milligrams. And there were over 246,000 patients studied. 47% of them with rheumatoid arthritis were on, or I'm sorry, rheumatic diseases were on glucocorticoids. They found that patients who required long-term glucocorticoids actually had higher use of narcotics. They also had an increased rate of hospitalized infections. And this also correlated with um, prior studies where the higher the milligrams per day of steroids, the higher the rates of hospitalized hospitalized infection. Patients requiring long-term glucocorticoids were also patients who had rheumatoid arthritis. They also had less follow-up with their physicians. Take-home point, minimize steroids, and also see your patients quickly and frequently. And then the last abstract that was presented during this session showed um, was evaluating the risk for cancer in patients with biologics compared to patients who are on traditional synthetic DMARDs. And this is a French database study. They found that um, when they evaluated 83,659 patients long-term, they didn't find any risk for increase in solid malignancy, just like in the other studies. Um, And the hazard ratio for lymphoma is 1.35 non-significant p-value and there's really no difference in cancer whether or not you're on biologics monotherapy or biologics plus DMARN. So this actually just confirms what we know that biologics really don't increase the risk for cancer or lymphoma. So if you want more information, please go to roomnow.com or acr19.roomnow.com. Dr. Katherine Dow reporting.
4: Hi everyone, my name is Kanika Manga and I'm with Room Now. and We are at the American College of Rheumatology annual meeting, and wow, what a great start it's been! And I'm extremely excited to have Dr. Ravel here with me right now. Uh, can't wait to ask him lots of questions for us. Hi, Dr. Ravel, how are you okay, doing?
5: Good to see you.
4: Nice to see you. So, first off, congratulations for being ACR Master. That's amazing.
6: Well, I sort of feel a it- question of having survived that long I mean given the alternative but it's an honor it it truly is an honor Uh, I've been working with the ACR for Lord uh, nearly 40 years and uh, uh, this is a very great honor to have been selected for this.
4: Well it's my honor to be here with you right now what advice would you have for people that want to pursue a career in rheumatology?
6: Well this is a very good time be going to rheumatology. Uh, we have a much clearer concept of pathogenesis, uh, with better aids in diagnosis, and by all means more and effective treatments, albeit expensive. And uh, uh, it, we really can now do something for our patients. We are taught in diagnosis and to be skilled therein and we can do. We know that early diagnosis and early initiation of, of effective therapy uh, is very important in outcome, and that we have the tools now for that early diagnosis with genetics, with biomarkers, with new imaging techniques, and the like.
4: That's that's extremely true, and of course, I'm biased, and I love rheumatology as well. Uh, so, Dr. Ravel, how do you feel uh, the field has changed over the years?
6: Well, when I Joined, uh, we were called the American Rheumatism Association when I uh, first joined this organization. Actually, the first meeting I attended was in, as a medical student in 1976, so it that, that goes back quite a ways. Uh, things have changed a great deal, the especially has grown enormously. The awareness of what it is uh, and of the diseases involved therein, and especially, I like I said, with this growing awareness, we can diagnose earlier. Uh, the technology has. R- Remarkably, move forward, and the ACR has uh, more and more been enabled to ha- really help us in our mission. Yeah,
4: that's actually very, yeah, very true. Now, what are you most excited uh, to see at this year's meeting? What session are you most excited to attend?
6: Well, the plenaries are, are remarkable, and uh, they they're, they they especially highlighting n- novel treatments uh, and novel pathogenesis. Uh, the the uh, uh, I'm just completely bowled over at how fast uh, the scene, the scenery is changing and, and how much that we're going to be able to do. Uh, and it, it makes this especially all the more exciting. I think there's so many different sessions that, that one can attend, uh, so many ways that appeal to an individual's own focus or expertise uh, that uh, it's like being a kid in, the, in a candy store. The only danger is getting diabetic.
4: That's true, it's a Disney World for a rheumatologist. Uh, so, I'm extremely excited about the Hench Lecture that you're going to give us on Tuesday morning. Can you tell us a little bit more about what's in store for us?
6: Well, that's a special passion of mine. Uh, uh, chronic back pain is, is, is a major challenge uh, in this country, it's the leading cause of disability. Huge co- uh, uh, billions of dollars in lost productivity, work wages, uh, d- disability funding, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and uh, uh, it's not well managed by the community, especially by the rheumatology community, where in, in, with some, looking at some insurance databases, only 14% of patients with chronic back pain ever even encounter a rheumatologist. The problem is that one third uh, in, the, in the NHANES study, 20% of the U.S. population, 20% has chronic back pain. One third of them have chronic inflammatory back pain. And, and uh, of course, that's a symptom and raises the suspicion high for spinal arthritis. Uh, we, with the diminishing manpower we have in rheumatology, which will turn around, this represents a special challenge because mostly people don't encounter rheumatologists because some of the novel terminology, like that ankylosing spondylitis, is now synonymous with non with with, with radiographic axial spinal arthritis, All this is unknown uh, to primary care practitioners, and this is very troubling because. Spinal arthritis represents a a group of diseases where so many novel and effective treatments have have come forward, but they work by far the best and do their best job preventing disability and deformity if initiated early in the disease course. So this is a big focus of mine. Uh, uh, We're going to start with looking at the specter of chronic back pain in the United States, to chronic inflammatory back pain, talking about non-radiographic axial spinal arthritis the challenge that it represents especially in women because the majority of people with non-radiographic are women and and too many are called fibromyalgia and again it's an issue we know that these medications work very well even before the x-rays turn positive which is seven to ten years uh, after the onset of symptoms uh, so uh I'm gonna really be focused on that. And finally, to where we've gone with this, with, with some of the new advances in genetics, where we're understanding uh, more and more what causes disease, and especially where you've where you, where you got a gene, you've got a drug. I mean, the genes predict the drugs that are going to work. Uh, all the novel treatments have been planned by the, g- g- by the genetics, and, and so, so uh, this is important knowledge to have. I just wish that we had the manpower, and the focus to better address this at a national level from the denominator of chronic back pain.
4: Thank you so much for that explanation. I'm now even more excited and thrilled about the lecture. Uh, Once again, thank you so much for talking to us at RoomNow. And for everyone watching this, please log on to RoomNow.com for more information. Thank you.
7: Hi, I'm Philip Robinson. I'm uh, from Brisbane in Australia. Uh, and I've uh, just come back from Dan Claw's session on fibromyalgia which was a fantastic summary on how to think about uh, fibromyalgia and how to treat fibromyalgia. One of the things that he reminded us is that there are lots of chronic pain syndromes that we don't necessarily think about. Things like dry eye necessarily, that might, that's also like a fibromyalgia of the eye in a lot of people. Uh, and think about these other syndromes in the patients that you're seeing. Uh, He reminded us that potentially the relevance of tender points isn't that relevant now and that you can ask questions like, uh, are you uncomfortable when people hug you? Uh, Are you uncomfortable when people do your blood pressure? Are much more relevant because these are chronic, widespread pain disorders, uh, not just focal pain disorders. And he also reminded us that people really don't often just have one type of pain, they have mixed pain. And so you've got to think about the proportion of pain that each person has. Do they have an amount of nociceptive pain, which you would expect from, say, rheumatoid, neuropathic pain, and then central pain? Because you're never gonna make progress unless you actually target the cause of their pain. Uh, And finally, he reminded us that opiates, uh, well, they often work to start with, the longer you are on them and the higher doses that patients end up on, the less effective they are. And he reminded us that there are more effective therapies including SNRIs uh, and gabapentinoids and you know simple tricyclics uh, that uh, have evidence. And he also reminded us of the burgeoning amount of evidence for non-pharmacological treatments like CBT and regular activity. And you're gonna make progress with your patients when you actually Put together a combination of these treatments because not each one of them is very effective but when you combine them together they often uh, create a package that's actually effective for patients so if you want to know more about this i'd recommend you go and to go
8: to roomnow.com hello my name is torkel ellings and i'm from odens university hospital in denmark And I've been asked to uh, add a few comments on poster 563, which is uh, data from one of our PhD students, Rikke Asmussen, who is unfortunately not able to be here. And it's about uh, sex differences in ankylosing spondylitis and non-radiographic ax spa, where Rikke collected uh, 100 patients consecutively from a university clinic setting in Svendborg and Odense, Denmark, and uh, we decided to focus on pain parameters that we not usually collect when we evaluate disease activity in uh, ankylosing spondylitis and non-radiographic AXPAR. And the two main findings are that the BASTI among females with non-radiographic AXPAR was significantly higher than in the males. And that in both ankylosing spondylitis and non-radiographic uh, AXPA we found significantly higher number of tender points when evaluated clinically. And <clears throat> this is uh, interesting because obviously pain is a challenge for both the patient and the physician when you deal with ankylosing spondylitis but uh, when you see sex differences like this then you need to be very cautious when you make decisions on when you intensify or make evaluations that are needed for treatment changes. And uh, Regi will evaluate this further in her coming papers. and. Uh, poster just presented is uh, last week uh, published in Artrise and Research Care, so please check it up there.
2: Hi, I'm David Liu from Melbourne, Australia reporting from RoomNow from ACI 2019 here in Atlanta. Really interesting poster on the floor today from the IgG4-related disease clinic at MassGen. Uh, Obviously, these guys have been collecting a lot of data over time and they've got a large cohort. Looking at their 205 patients, they wanted to see whether there was a mortality difference between the patients that they had versus uh, age age and uh, disease match controls. And so they looked at the standardised mortality rates between their patients and uh, comparing that to normative data. The really interesting thing, and I wouldn't have expected this, is the fact that in fact these patients, it's not a life-limiting condition in these patients, that these patients have um, at least short-term mortality which is comparable to what they would look like otherwise. And it didn't matter how you splice or dice it, if you looked at criteria-positive patients, male patients, patients with internal organ involvement, they all seem to do okay. Now, is this because MassGen are really good at treating IgG4-related disease? Or is this because that this isn't a life-limiting condition or somewhere in between? That question still remains to be answered. And really what we need to do is get broader data, longer-term data, data from more centres, um, and data from places where they're maybe not giving as much rituximab um, upfront, where steroids, uh, steroid first-line therapy is more common. So more data needed in this space really starts to ask the question though, is IgG4-related disease a life-limiting condition or not? I'm David Liu, and for more information, go to roomnow.com.
9: Hi, I'm Dr. Rachel Tate, coming to you from Atlanta for ACR 2019. I just attended a really great poster session, so I'm gonna tell you a little bit about Abstract 1163. So, number one, we know that inflammatory back pain is often a cause for patients coming to a rheumatology office. And we also know that in terms of ASAS criteria, we need MRI changes as well as an HLA-B27 positivity as part of that criteria. Not for every patient though. So this is a Belgian study that looked at 138 patients and they wanted to understand if inflammatory back pain was actually predisposing patients to have MRI changes. So they took these 138 patients and they did MRIs on everyone and found that those patients who had inflammatory back pain symptoms, as well as HLA-B27 positivity in these newly diagnosed SPA patients who all were TNF naive, they found that that inflammatory back pain was actually probably a harbinger for severity of disease. On MRI, the most common finding were erosions, but predominantly in the patient population that had experienced inflammatory back pain symptoms. So even though this means that inflammatory back pain is something we need to be worried about, I argue that because this is a small study, non-inflammatory back pain symptoms may also be something we need to really look at. So we need to make sure we're properly imaging patients based on their symptomatology, not just for ASAS criteria. So check us out on RoomNow.com and at RoomNow on Twitter and can't wait to give you more information from this meeting, it's been a great one. Hi, I'm Dr. Rachel Tate from West Palm Beach, Florida, coming to you from Atlanta for ACR 2019. I just got out of a great session this morning. The CSRO, the Coalition of State Rheumatology Organizations, did a small legislative update, which I'll be blogging on later at roomnow.com, but I wanted to share one piece of really vital information for you if you are unaware. Rheumatology, we're really good at advocating for our patients, but we need to be better advocates for ourselves, politically, legislatively. We need some um, help in this particular regard. So, the CSRO, decided to update their website this year. It's CSRO.info. Why I'm telling you this is because down the next few months, we're gonna see a huge change on the website. They're putting together an interactive state map that allows you to go to click on your state and you will see all of the legislature and how it affects you clinically as a physician and also how it affects the patients. Why is this tool useful? Well, a couple of things. Number one, if you want to stay up to date and with your legislators, this is a way to do it. But also, if you have a patient who's invested in their own advocacy and wants more information, it's another way for them to do that. So if you have legislature coming down the pipeline, they will also have direct links of how to interact with that, what to say, who to talk to, all of it will be done for you. Now, it's not out yet, but it will be on CSRO.info, and I highly recommend you check it out. For me, I think this is a game changer. We need to be advocates for ourselves. So in addition to what you do in clinical practice, this is a way to do it. So keep checking us out on RoomNow.com, handle for Twitter is at RoomNow, and we're going to send you more updates from ACR 2019 in Atlanta.
5: Hello, I'm Jonathan Kay from the University of Massachusetts Medical School in Worcester, Massachusetts. I'm at ACR 2019 in Atlanta, and I just heard an interesting presentation by Dr. Ernest Choi about major adverse cardiovascular events and venous thromboembolic events in patients with rheumatoid arthritis from the integrated safety database of Upatacitinib. He presented data from the five clinical trials in the phase three program of Upatocytinib, looking at two doses, 15 and 30 milligrams, as well as the comparators, methotrexate, adalimumab, 40 milligrams every other week, and placebo. What he presented was that the rates of major adverse cardiovascular events and venous thromboembolic events overlapped for all of the treatment groups. Upatacitinib at 15 and 30 milligrams taken by mouth daily, adalimumab, 40 milligrams taken subcutaneously every other week, methotrexate, and placebo. All of the patients with major adverse cardiovascular events had at least one cardiovascular risk factor, and patients with venous thromboembolic events also had risk factors for venous thromboembolic events such as a prior deep venous thrombosis, knee replacement, or other risk factors. The conclusion of the study was that there was no dose relationship between upadacitinib and the occurrence of these events, and the rate of these events was similar for upadacitinib with the comparators adalimumab, methotrexate, and placebo. What this does not answer is the question as to why patients treated with JAK inhibitors are developing venous thromboembolic events. It's not related to platelet counts uh, since platelet counts did not change significantly throughout the time period that patients were treated with apatacitinib and patients on placebo also developed these events. It will be very important to understand the mechanism whereby venous thromboembolic events occur in patients treated with JAK inhibitors so that we can predict which patients are at risk and treat them appropriately to prevent this devastating adverse effect, uh, which may be an effect of this class of medications and may be completely unrelated. For more information, go to Room Now. I'm Jonathan Kay. Thanks. Great. Great. Okay. You're always first, take Dr. K. Okay.
10: Arthur Lau reporting uh, from ACR 2019 from Atlanta for RoomNow.com. I want to talk to you about an interesting study I uh, just saw in the poster hall, uh, abstract number 1412, uh, the uh, oral shift study, uh, where, which was an open-label uh, global phase 3B4 study uh, where patients with methotrexate inadequate response were initially started on Jan's mr 11 kilograms for uh, 24 weeks as open label and then if the, the, if these patients were able to achieve uh, low disease activity based on CDI, they were then randomized uh, to uh, either go on monotherapy of, the, of these algens MR11 milligrams or to stay on their methotrexates. Uh, you had to be on 15 to 25 milligrams of methotrexate oro uh, at the beginning to be included in the study, and the mean dose was somewhere between 16 and 17 milligrams in each group. Uh, what the study showed is that after another 24 weeks, uh, of either monotherapy or continuing methotrexate, there was very little difference for house-related uh, quality of life uh, for both the uh, mental for both the mental and the physical component of the, of the SF-36. So overall, uh, what this shows is that if you were able to achieve low disease activity for uh, after starting on a JAK inhibitor, uh, uh, Zalgens MR in this uh, in this instance, uh, you can actually do relatively well and discontinue methotrexate and. the patients can still maintain good quality of life. Uh, This is important because you know I have many patients with rheumatoid with comorbidities that are either unable or unwilling to continue on methotrexate so this just reassures me that once they uh, initially do well I can discontinue their methotrexate and likely they will continue to do well in the future. Uh, Thanks for uh, tuning in here and for more information uh, log on to uh, roomnow.com for further information and to see their extended coverage for ACR.
3: This is Dr. Kathryn Dow reporting for Room Now. I'm at the ACR 2019 meeting here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I just got out of an exciting lecture. It's the Klemperer lecture with Dr. James who presented preclinical lupus, the winding road to lupus. So what are the main take home points here? Well, as you know, There are a lot of patients who are positive ANA. In fact, up to 25% of people in the healthy population will have a positive ANA, but yet only 5 to 8% of these patients actually develop lupus. Well, can we predict who will develop lupus? And what about those 20% of patients who don't develop lupus? What's so special about them? So, Dr. James, who works for the OMRF, basically has a database that um, is accessing the Department of Defense. And essentially, what was found was that, number one, these patients who develop and transition into lupus have actually a few risk factors. They're typically first-degree relatives of family members who have lupus. Not only that, they probably have a lot of autoantibodies. The more autoantibodies you have, actually, and also an interferon signature, that means you're more likely to progress to lupus. What she also found was that other risk factors traditionally that we've seen also predispose patients to develop lupus. That's tobacco smoking, that is hormones, so that's either an oral contraceptives or else hormone replacement therapy, Um, and in addition to that, vitamin D deficiency and sleep deprivation. That would be me, right? So if you sleep under seven hours a night, that puts you at risk. Now what's also interesting is that alcohol, moderate alcohol could be protective against uh, developing lupus. So I didn't see that one coming. But anyways, when they compared patients who are positive ANA to patients who are negative ANA and patients who are lupus. They found that these positive ANA patients who are healthy actually have suppressive cytokines as well as inflammatory cytokines. They're not at all as healthy as we thought. So there are these triggers that may have patients progress um, and there's currently a study in fact, one of our study sites is at UT Southwestern. That's where I am faculty at. And what we're looking at right now is patients who are ANA positive who also have one sleep criteria positive. And we wanna know whether or not these patients will develop lupus if given hydroxychloroquine. So, the study's in progress. If you have patients who are interested in enrolling, you can always contact us. And for more information, please go to roomnow.com or acr19.roomnow.com. Dr. Catherine Dow reporting.
11: Hello everyone, I'm Olga Petrina, reporting from the annual ACR meeting here in Atlanta. Uh, Today I would like to talk about the abstract number 301, which speaks about paneler recommendations on use of imaging studies in gout. Uh, So there's a lot being told about guiding our treatment based on serum uric acid, but there is not really a clear recommendations how we could use imaging modalities in monitoring and guiding treatment of uh, gout patients. So Pamler's ultrasound study group included rheumatologists, radiologists, statisticians, and methodologists to develop recommendations in this regard. After reviewing all available uh, evidence, they graded most of their recommendations at level two and three, and uh, oh, based on the uh, on the evidence in the literature, and then they develop following recommendations. Uh, recommendation number one is that we can use ultrasound uh, to detect the elementary uh, uh, deposits in the joints, and we could use dual energy CT scan to detect monosodium urate crystals in patients with gout. Um, the same uh, group suggests that uh, both ultrasound and dual-energy CT scan can be not so uh, sensitive in detecting monosodium uh, urate crystals and damage in patients who had disease duration of less than two years, uh, but is very specific so that justifies the use of those modalities. It also says that patients with gout uh, do not present with very clear uh, imaging results on x-ray and CT scan in terms of joint damage, but based on low cost of the study and high sensitivity it it is recommended to still use x-ray and CT scan as initial uh, imaging study in patients with gout. As it comes to an MRI and ultrasound, these modalities are considered uh, very effective in detecting synovitis and tenosynovitis, but they're not very useful in assessing for crystal deposition and uh, gouty erosions in patients with gout. And uh, also there is, no uh, sufficient evidence to support uh, using these modalities in uh, guiding treatment choices or in monitoring patients over time. And it says it's best to use these modalities for initial diagnosis only, although they can be used as a complementary monitoring techniques uh, in most of the cases. If you would like to learn more, you can read about us more on Room now and also continue following us online. Thank you and have a nice day.
0: Sarah Eric Ruderman uh, from Northwestern University in Chicago. I'm coming to you live from the ACR meeting in Atlanta uh, for Room Now. Um, What's going on today on Sunday? Well, one of the exciting uh, abstracts we're gonna see today is the first of the phase three trials of gazelle kebab and psoriatic arthritis. Uh, We've seen a progression of uh, treatment options in psoriatic arthritis looking at different approaches, different pathways, and now we've got the first phase three data an interleukin 23 inhibitor. These drugs are really hot in the psoriasis space. Uh, we've seen phase two data in psoriatic arthritis and now we're seeing two trials at this meeting, the first of which is a plenary session today uh, in phase three data for COMAB, very effective in psoriatic arthritis, uh, effective at two different dose arms, either uh, given every eight weeks as is uh, conventional for psoriasis and every four weeks uh, at thinking that perhaps psoriatic arthritis would need a higher dose. The trial today looked at patients who are both biologic naive and a small percentage of patients who are biologically experienced. Uh, there was a slight difference uh, in dosing arms with the four week uh, patients getting a little bit new- better numerical response, though not statistically different. We're gonna see the second phase three trial later in the week in which there wasn't a real difference between arms. The key point of the second trial, which includes patients who are all biologic naive, is that there was uh, radiographic benefit, uh, statistically significant, at the highest dose arm. Um, really cool data. The safety profile of this pathway is uh, tremendous. Uh, it does appear that we're going to see fewer infections, uh, fewer adverse events than we've seen with other cytokine inhibitors. So we're really looking forward to having uh, IL-23 inhibitors in our armamentarium for psoriatic arthritis as rheumatologists. Our, psoriatic, our, our dermatologist friends have been using them for psoriasis for a while. And we're excited to get on the bandwagon.
12: Hi, I'm Mike Putman, coming to you from ACR 2019, reporting for Room Now. Now I wanted to talk briefly about the ACR urine review today. It was a wonderful lecture, and the select monotherapy trial came up. Now, with trials like this, I think there's something important for you to remember. That trial was run on patients who were methotrexate non-responders and went on to either continue methotrexate or get upadacitinib. Now the implication when you hear the trial discussed is that upadacitinib was better than methotrexate. However, this is not a population of patients who already didn't respond to methotrexate. So it's not surprising that a new drug would perform better than the old drug that already wasn't performing. It's a very different question than saying, I have a patient with rheumatoid arthritis, should I give them methotrexate or upatocytinib? In a blank slate population, it may be that they're equivalent, may be that methotrexate even works better than upatocytinib. We're still waiting for a trial that's going to assess that question. I think it's important to remember that a trial assessing a new therapy in non-responders continuing therapy doesn't necessarily prove that point. Thank you so much. I hope you're all enjoying the meeting. If you're looking for more information, please go to Room Now Live. Room now.
9: <laughs> Hi, I'm Dr. Rachel Tate coming to you from Atlanta 2019 for ACR 2019. So I just got through an amazing poster session. Check them out if you haven't, and definitely follow us at RoomNow for Twitter and RoomNow.com. But I wanna tell you a little bit about this year. So 2019 and 2020 is gonna be a huge year for gout. In fact, on Wednesday, we're gonna have the updated gout guidelines, or gout lines, as I like to call them. And what I wanted to share with you as a little appetizer are the actual Panlar recommendations for 2019. So Panlar decided to put together a task force of nine rheumatologists, musculoskeletal radiologists, ultrasonographers, statisticians and methodologists and they looked at a huge literature review to determine how we can best utilize um, imaging for our patients. So they came up with eight particular recommendations and I will refer you to abstract 301 or poster 301 for further information but I want to highlight two things. The entire task force went together on two. There was a consensus on two of these recommendations. The first is for those difficult patients. So when you have a patient who is difficult to diagnose, you think that they're gout, but perhaps they are not, the group unanimously decided that ultrasound or dex scanning would be appropriate for these particular patients. The other subset is when you have patients who you believe have MSU or uric acid deposition and crystals in other tissues besides the joints, they all again recommend ultrasound and dex scanning. So they looked at all of the literature that they could to determine between x-rays uh, ct scans mris and ultrasounds and this is what they came up with so if you come if you want to look at it a little bit further a little more in depth i recommend abstract number 301 poster 301 and thank you for coming to, to share some time with us in Atlanta for ACR 2019. And check us out on Twitter. The handle is at RoomNow or RoomNow.com. And more will come from gout, I promise you. So stay tuned.
1: Hey, hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope. I'm a roving reporter for Room Now at the ACR 2019 conference in uh, sunny but cool Atlanta. I'd like to talk to you about Abstract 464. This is a Japanese study, and the reason I'm talking about it, even though it's a little study, is because it answers a clinically relevant question. The question is, if you're seropositive and you have rheumatoid arthritis and you're treated with a TNF inhibitor, will reduction of the rheumatoid factor independent of improvement on your disease activity score, affect erosions. So this was a small study, and they only looked at seropositive patients. The mean uh, positivity was a level of 104 at the beginning, over 50 patients, and they looked at four months and 12 months. And patients who became lower in their rheumatoid factor positivity by at least 30%, had less erosions at the end of a year, even if you adjusted for DAS score. So lowering your rheumatoid factor with a TNF inhibitor, interestingly, seems to give less erosions, even if it was an equal change in DAS. I picked this paper because it's really important when we know that anti-CCP has been looked at a lot and we know that as of for instance, adalimumab doesn't lower anti-CCP as much as, say, avitacep. this is looking at rheumatoid factor within people on TNF inhibitors. Will this change my practice, repeating RF factors over and over? No, but it gives me a hint that there's a pathway independent of disease activity that causes joint erosions in RA. Thank you.